0: from PRX.
1: You. Studio. E. Oh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio.
2: 360 with
1: Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not being sniffy. I think I you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. What are you
3: saying over there?
1: Stay on the show.
0: You're the negative value in the piece. Don't think about it. You're just, you're there. You're going to play Hitler. you got to give it everything you've got. you got to be the best Hitler you can be. Here's Johnny. Keep listening. Stay right there.
1: Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. The New Zealand film director Taika Waititi is best known for his small and singular drama comedy crossbreeds, like Eagle vs. Shark, about two very socially awkward misfits.
2: Do you want a kiss? Yep. On the lips though? Yep. Okay.
1: And the Sundance hit from last year, Hunt for the Wielder People, about a very young juvenile delinquent and a backwoods curmudgeon.
0: Why would I need to read a map? I already told you I know where I am. Reading's stupid anyway.
1: So, what is his next film about? The Asgardian God of Thunder, naturally. You need to stop her here and now. To prevent Ragnarok, the end of everything. YTD is the director of Thor Ragnarok, which is the latest blockbuster in the Marvel superhero series. While it has all the obligatory computer-generated action scenes and movie stars and cosmic existential stakes, it is also a very smart, funny, character-based comedy. Taika Waititi is with me here now to talk about this new movie and the movies that inspired it. Welcome to Studio 360. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Why did Marvel and Disney or whichever say, yeah, this is our guy, this guy's made these little movies in New Zealand?
2: That's a great question. I've been asking myself for that for a couple of years. I I think what they wanted was a certain tone. They actually watched What We Do in the Shadows, my mockumentary about uh, vampires. Stu took it pretty well. He's definitely my best mate and I'm not going to eat him. Vampire mates don't eat human mates. And no matter how much I wanted to eat him, I would never eat him because he's my mate. yeah, it's true. Yeah. And then they
1: watched Boy. Which is your movie from 2007 about this 11-year-old kid. Yeah.
2: you got a girlfriend.
1: There's this girl that really likes me a lot. But I don't know if I want to, you know, get involved.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, don't get her pregnant, that's all. It's the number one rule. And it was actually a boy that made them think that, you know, I might be able to handle not only the comedy elements that they were looking for, but also the stuff that needed some weight to it.
1: And so they give you the gig. And, and, and then did you did you panic at all? You don't seem, at least sitting here today, like a very panic-prone person.
2: Um, I had the, a little reticence because I thought, oh, well, yeah, is this, they've got a, a really successful track record of, you know, 15 or 16 successful films. Am I going to be the one to, you know, to ruin that record? Am I, you know, is, is this the one?
1: Yeah. This comedy superhero movie is practically a new genre. And you must have thought, uh, and I wonder because you're the first expert I've talked to about this, is why these comic book-based movies are now becoming comic because the world
2: is a very depressing place and we uh, need some true escapism. I think tonally, you know, we've, we're kind of going through these phases, aren't right, we? Right, um, Men in right. Right now, we kind of feel like we can handle it. Yeah. Men in Black was amazing. James Bond movies, which may have invented. Roger com- Moore. Right? All of Roger Moore's stuff. Is exactly. Like, really funny.
3: He suggests the trade, the egg, for your life.
1: Well, I'd heard the price of eggs was going up, but isn't that a little high?
2: And yeah, we'll go back to the kind of dark night, gritty sort of, you know. Yeah, now hand.
1: we're now we're living the dark night land. So <laughs> exactly we, yeah. we, we need, need men in life. We don't
2: need to be reminded of that when we go to the movies.
1: Yeah, um, your the dialogue in this film feels, in addition to being actually funny, actually making me laugh out loud, which, as my family, I seldom do, uh, feels loose and naturalistic, and which led me to the question of how much of this is ad-libbed here and there on set
2: well a lot of it is ad-libbed we um we had a, a script um written by eric pearson what i tend to do with scripts unless i've written them is just take them as more of a suggestion uh for, for what to so do. you
1: have contempt for writers
2: unless you're the writer exactly um so so we'd get to Well se- also my problem with a lot of um studio films or hollywood films is when you hear a joke in these films they're like some sort of yeah, you know, Woody one liner, a little quip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you know that they wrote that seven or eight months before they shot it, and it was all planned. and was like, oh, can't wait to shoot this gag. And my style is to get to work and say, how can we take what's on the page and make it twenty times better, based on what props we have here, who the actors are. Because I didn't know that these actors were going to be cast when we were writing, and yeah, you know, and just basically try and find you are only on set. In that moment, once, and you only have that one chance, that one day or that one moment to get the best material out of your actors and off the page, you can never just settle for the written word.
1: One of the best ad-libs happens when when Thor is forced to engage in gladiatorial combat and he finds out that his opponent is is, uh, the Hulk, his long-lost friend.
2: That was actually given to us and it was offered up by a, um, a make-a-wish kid who'd come to visit set and you know a little, little kid who was who was hanging out on set and in between takes you know, Chris would go go over and say hi to him and hang out we were about to start a new take and he said hey uh, the Hulk's about to smash through this, this door why don't you say um, yeah we know each other he's a friend from work I give you your incredible
0: yeah. Yeah. He's a friend from work.
2: Turns out to be the best line in the movie. It's a good uh, line. And it's on t shirts now. This is really like like a little
1: kid? A little kid, yeah. Any others you recall?
2: Well, most of my character's lines are um, are ad libbed.
1: And your character is this. uh, uh, This rock monster. Doofus rock monster called Korg.
2: Korg. Like the the piano slash synthesizer.
1: Korg. Um, Here's a clip of Korg uh, with Thor, played by Chris Hemsworth. No, I really wish I had my hammer your hammer? Quite unique, it was made from
0: this, this special metal From the heart of a darling star And when I spun it really, really fast It gave me the ability to fly
2: You rode a hammer?
0: No, I, I didn't ride the hammer
2: The hammer rode you on your back?
0: No, 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 I, I used to spin it really fast And it, it, would, it would pull me off the... Oh my God, the hammer pulled you off? The ground, it would pull me off the ground Up into the air and I would fly Every time I threw it, it would always come back to me
2: sounds like you had a pretty special and intimate relationship with this hammer and that losing it was almost comparable to losing a loved one. It's a nice way of putting it.
1: Now, I, I, that's one of the places I laughed out loud because it went on and on and on. It wasn't propelling the plot. No. It was doing nothing but being funny.
2: That is most of my character's dialogue, There's doing nothing. It's not propelling anything. Um, I'd go so far as to say my character may even be the most pointless part of the film. But... Yeah they're most enjoyable maybe I think that's why this film is so different humour wise yeah. you know you have uh, these conversations that go on and on and you can tell they weren't planned because superheroes aren't supposed to talk like yes. this they're not supposed to have long conversations about feelings and emotions uh, while sitting on the bed after an argument I'm referring to Thor and Hulk in that little scene where right. you know they're apologising to each other we're the
0: same you and I just a couple of hot-headed fools yeah same Hulk like fire, mm. Thor like water. Oh, well, kind of both like fire. And Hulk like raging fire, Thor like smoldering
2: fire. That scene doesn't even need to be. I and mean, it's like no, but and, it's actually it's it's texture and it's flavor, yeah. and actually it endears you to the characters more.
1: Absolutely. You, you said that uh, Thor Ragnarok is with Nolan and I in space. Uh, Withnell and I is this great 1987 British film uh, directed by Bruce Robinson. Explain for listeners what Withnell and I uh, was about.
2: It's a film about two um, unemployed actors who are living in a, in a decrepit, rundown um, flat in London, and it's set in the 60s. And uh, they decide to to get out of London and, and go to a, um, a and go out to the country. And it's a brilliant piece of comedy that, for me, one of the ultimate buddy flicks, I guess, if you will.
1: And here's a clip um, from it with Richard E. Grant playing Withnall and his buddy, only referred to as I, played by Paul McGann. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor reduced to the stakes of a bum. Have you been at the controls? What are you talking about? The thermostat. What have you
2: done to them? I haven't touched
1: them. Then uh, why has my head gone numb? I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze. Um so so Whitnell, uh the Richard E. Grant character, is is Hulk, I guess?
2: Yeah. Uh Richard E. Grant's character is um you know, he has these swings. He is a kind of a right. um uh a, a kind of bipolar. He would now be s- diagnosed. Style. Yeah, exactly, you know, and it's very much like Hulk or, or like Banner, you know. He's uh, prone to these tantrums and these m- huge mood swings,
1: and uh, and I
2: guess Thor is
1: I. Yeah. Uh, another one of your influences for Thor is Flash Gordon, uh, which was a 1980 uh, movie adaptation directed by Mike Hodges, which didn't take itself seriously at all and, and had a memorable soundtrack. <laughs>
2: I grew up with that, and I loved that. That was uh, quite a funny camp and colorful, over-the-top film. And I've always said that if Freddie Mercury were alive today, I would have asked Queen to do the soundtrack.
1: And and Queen did the soundtrack uh, of Flash Gordon. Your movie, Thor, has uh, very prominently one of the cheesiest Led Zeppelin songs uh, used to great effect. Uh, it's Immigrant Song from Led Zeppelin 3, uh, released before you were born.
2: They're all pretty cheesy, let's be honest. Yes. You can't say one. You can't <laughs> say the cheesiest. True. I guess
1: that's you true. You can't
2: talk about Led Zeppelin without... <laughs> Let me remind you, all of their songs yeah. are about The Hobbit. And Vikings. Yeah. The lyrics of that song, you know, we come from the land of the ice and snow.
1: snow, snow.
2: It deserves to be in this movie.
1: That's true. Another film you say uh, was an influence of yours is a movie I have not seen. uh, 1973, The Holy Mountain, um, uh, directed by... Alejandro Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky, thank you, uh, which is about a Christ-like figure seeking enlightenment. Each stone has a soul
0: formed by the work of millions of years. The tarot will teach you how to create a soul.
2: Visually, it's a stunning film. And surreal. Sur- as- very surreal. It's. You know, I mean, I've never understood what, what went on in the film. He does these very interesting shots, which um, I've kind of, yeah, I think I've I've been inspired by for this film.
1: So, in this film, for uh, your your major villain, uh, Grand Master. Is beautifully played by Jeff Goldblum. I, I I don't know if that was your casting or or the studio's casting, but nicely done.
2: Yeah, he's doing a great Jeff Goldblum impersonation, isn't he?
1: Now listen to that! He's thre- threatening
2: me. Hey, Sparkles, here's the deal. If you want to get back to As' uh, place, asperg As
0: God. Any contender who defeats my champion, their freedom they shall win. Fine. Then point me in the direction of whoever's arse I have to kick.
2: That's cycle
1: contender. Chris Hemsworth, who who has already played Thor a few times, I, I really had no idea he he could do comedy uh, this well. Yeah. Well, you got to see Ghostbusters, the new one.
2: What's this place called again?
1: Conductors of the metaphysical examination.
2: Got it. Uh, conductors
0: of metamucils and stuff. We. Oh, let's slow, slow down. I-
2: uh,
3: Th- they hung
2: up? No, I was just not into that conversation. He steals a lot of scenes and uh, when, when he's not the main actor.
1: When I think of funny New Zealanders, or for that matter, any New Zealanders, I, I think of your friend Jermaine uh, Clement from Flight of the Concords. and now you. And, and so now I feel like I know the difference between New Zealanders and Australians. You're these Skinny guys with beards and and, and Chris Hemsworth, yeah, and and those guys are just like super Southern Californians. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, okay, I'll give you that.
1: Okay, good.
2: I'm glad I was. I'm not gonna argue. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go there. I know you. I know. I know what is what's happening. You want to. You want. You want to. You want to set me off. You want to turn me into the Hulk. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but uh, Chris is legitimately funny.
1: Yeah. Um. Well. Well done. You, You made this this old geezer uh, like a superhero movie very much Uh so thank you (laughs) well thank you Thor Ragnarok directed by Taika Waititi is now playing everywhere on earth coming up why nobody cares what kind of kicks Emily Dickinson wore
3: Something that hip-hop has been able to achieve that poetry has not quite is that hip-hop is a totalizing culture. So hip-hop is not only a musical practice, right, but it's a sartorial practice, it's a verbal practice.
1: Poet Eve Ewing. She's next in Studio 360. Ewing's terrific new book is called Electric Arches, and it's shelved in the poetry sections of bookstores. But like Eve Ewing, it's not easy to categorize. She is a poet, and the book contains lots of poems, but it also has illustrations by her and some short stories and pieces of shrewd social criticism. It's really a -a one-of-a-kind feast of a book. Eve Ewing is also a Twitter star and earns her living as a sociologist at the University of Chicago. In other words, Eve Ewing, Renaissance person. I asked her to read some of her poems, including this one called Columbus Hospital, which is where she was born in Chicago 30 years ago and which no longer exists.
3: Columbus Hospital. The first stone is the hardest which is why they don't use hands anymore. Too much, the push of the granite on the pads of the fingers, too much like the push of a match on the side of the dollar store box when the phosphorus has all gone out of it, the tinder has all gone out of its heart, and the red is scratched with brown, such that you rub and scrape, but the fire never comes. It hurts too much, that fruitless scrape, so they don't use their hands anymore. No, the croaking chain does a man's job. Wrecking balls don't get arthritis or cry or show up on site with lunches that their wives made, bleary-eyed, standing in worn housecoats in the darkness. The dynamite never says, but my uncle died here in this hospital, and I still smell the ammonia and see the misshapen pound cake. While the tremor spreads and the walls come down. It's a depressing-ass poem. Sorry, guys. It's no, and I was just going to say, <laughs> in, in my
1: opinion, which should not be regarded as expert on poetry, you're a really good poet.
3: Thank you. I truly appreciate that. Well, I truly appreciate that.
1: Uh, that's, that's what I feel. This book, uh, and obviously you, uh, it, but this book is so grounded in Chicago with these references to these specific streets, intersections, uh, stores, because Why?
3: Well, uh, because that's where I'm from. I think that uh, part of the human condition is that I think we're attracted to specificity of narrative because we're able to fill in our own story, right? So, like, a lot of my favorite writers and authors and musicians are talking about places where I've never lived, in some cases places where I've never even been, right? Um, But there's something so magical about um, somebody's ability to accurately describe a place in a set of people. And that's something I've always been inspired by and something I'm striving for here. And I have a poem in the book called Fullerton Avenue, and... 99% of the people who read the book, like, don't know where that is and have never been there. And I think that they can still get a lot out of the poem. Um, But then there's that 1% of people that are like, you know, I know the laundromat that you're talking about. And that's great for them as well. Um, So I hope it kind of operates on different valences. So
1: that poem was grounded in reality, very much so. But others uh, in the book are more fantastical and
3: almost sci-fi. Do you have influences in those genres? Um, I used to watch a lot of uh, Twilight Zone as a kid. Good for you. Uh, yeah, I'm a big, huge fan of the Twilight Zone. I'm a big fan of, like, Star Trek The Next Generation um, and Star Wars, which sort of, I guess, straddles a line between sci-fi and um, fantasy. Read a lot of fantasy as a kid. And so, yeah, those are absolutely influences of mine, and I think that uh, I enjoy the blurriness of boundaries between our contemporary reality and the sense of possibility that those genres provide. But I think sci-fi more generally is a place where we kind of work out our cultural tensions in a way that fascinates me. Which leads me
1: to a question I've had about the term Afrofuturism, mm-hmm. which has become very...
3: All of a sudden is like everywhere. Yes. I, I wrote the book at the
1: right time. And, and, and <laughs> uh, No, and I think I may have first heard of it when Janelle Monae was on the show yeah. like a decade ago. Wow,
3: I didn't know Janelle Monet was on this. She's a huge influence on this book, actually, and on me. I can imagine. Yeah, you can see some probably fairly obvious ways that that's the case. But
1: other than black people writing science fiction,
3: what does Afrofuturism mean to you? The way I always define it is the simple premise that black people are going to continue to exist into the future. And then once you take that basic premise, you can work through all the implications of how and why and what that means. And it's a premise that on the one hand, um, it, the, the simplicity is deceptive because uh, when you are from a diasporic people who— um, have at every different stage in history, especially throughout American history, faced the the essential threat of annihilation, then the premise that you continue to exist is actually kind of radical. Um, it's also radical in the context of a science fiction culture in which black people often are completely absent. People of color often are completely absent. So both within kind of the literary or popular culture tradition, and then on this fundamental premise, to me, it's actually kind of a radical, fascinating idea. So it's not necessarily, I'm from Planet Kobob? Or, uh, <laughs> no, although I am from Planet Kobob and I don't appreciate being outed on air. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> I, I apologize. Uh, no, it's okay. The
1: pop singer, uh, Janelle Monet, how, how do she and her fictional alter ego uh, fit into this?
3: So, Cindy Mayweather, Janelle Monet's character, is a great example of this, right? Cindy Mayweather is this character who is an android who has these kind of messianic. Um, legacy or destiny right and the ways in which robots and cyborgs and androids are treated in this fictional universe that she's created in many ways mirrors the ways in which black people are treated in the contemporary moment right in the same way that like the x-men have for generations been using the idea of a mutant as sort of like a a stand-in for for racism right so there's this like bias and bigotry and fear xenophobia against mutants um And then you have people like Sun Ra who say, like, no, I'm actually from a different planet. And part of what I'm looking for as a black person is a chance to escape in oppression, which is then located not only in this country, but actually in the entire condition of being on Earth. And I'm trying to get back to my homeland. Right. So I think that if you take that simple premise, it allows you to um, play out the ramifications in all of these different ways that fascinate me. Um, Will you read another
1: poem? Sure. Uh, What I mean when I say I'm sharpening my oyster
3: knife. Oh, sure. I love that poem. Um, So this poem is inspired by a quotation from Zora Neale Hurston, um, the great Harlem Renaissance writer, who said, No, I do not weep at the world. I am too busy sharpening my oyster knife. This poem is called What I Mean When I Say I'm Sharpening My Oyster Knife. I mean, I'm here to eat up all the ocean you thought was yours. I mean, I brought my own quarter of a lemon, tart and full of seeds. I mean, I'm a tart. I'm a bad seed. I'm a red-handled thing, and if you move your eyes from me, I'll cut the tender place where your fingers meet. "'I mean, I never met a dish of horseradish I didn't like. "'I mean, you're a twisted and ugly root, "'and I am the pungent, stinging firmness inside. "'I mean, I look so good in this hat with a feather, "'and I'm a feather, and I'm the heaviest featherweight you know. "'I mean, you can't spell anything I talk about "'with that sorry alphabet you have left over from yesterday. "'I mean, when I see something dull and uneven, "'barnacled and ruined, "'I know how to get to its iridescent everything. "'I mean, I eat them alive.' What I mean is I'll eat you alive, slipping the blade in sideways, cutting nothing because the space was always there.
1: That's Eve viewing, uh, reading her great poem, it, reading it as an entirely different character than the previous one you read.
3: Yeah, they're very different. Um, the poem is very much inspired by like battle rap and um, hip hop. And uh, Zora Neale Hurston is this kind of defiant character. Um, and so I hope to bring some of that defiance into, into the piece.
1: You seem like maybe the Hurston of your generation, right? Oh, my gosh. You don't stick to one lane. She didn't stick to one lane in addition to being a novelist, her most famous novel being uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God. uh, She was an anthropologist. Yes,
3: I tell people that all the time.
1: Right? Uh, Researched uh, African-American and Haitian folklore and religion. Um, She must be a big, huge role model for you.
3: Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, Yes, very much so. I mean, well, as somebody who is a social scientist and also a creative writer— um, people ask me all the time, you know, how do you do both of these things or what does it mean or how do you move between them? And that's a little frustrating for me because I feel like people don't realize that there are historical antecedents. Um, Hurston is an example that I often give. So is Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois is another example that I often give.
1: He was a sociologist.
3: He was a sociologist. He made visual art. He wrote novels. He was a Started essayist. Started the NAACP. Yeah, he did, he did all of the things. Um and so I think that it is so much less necessary than people assume to draw these strict boundaries around your own work. And it just seems so artificial. Well, and 200 years ago, it wasn't nearly as true. No. And, you know, I say that all the time when, like, people are talking about, like, oh, well, are you a spoken word poet or a literary poet? I'm like, well, was Homer a spoken word poet or was he – you know, what does – what do those things even mean? Um, but, yeah, Zora Neale Hurston is a huge, um, a huge influence on me in that regard. You mentioned uh, that
1: that poem was also inspired by hip hop. Have the last couple of generations of battle rap and hip hop and spoken word softened up the ground for people's ability to get poetry, do you think?
3: I think that for some people that like a familiarity with hip hop and with um, the verbal necessities of hip hop can provide an entryway into other conversations about poetry. It's a gateway form. I think so. I think so. But like any gateway, you kind of have to walk through. Right. So I'll give you an example. Like a generation ago. Um, a lot of folks in hip-hop were drawing very, very heavily from jazz music, right? In a way that I think now a lot of my contemporaries are drawing very heavily from funk music. Um, But it's not like everybody who listened to Most Deaf then went on to become like a hardcore jazz fan, right? But I'm sure some people did. So I think that like, um, I think that all of these art forms have very fluid relationships across the cultural landscape and the choice is there for people as to how they may or may not use one to sort of slide into the other. Uh, And I'm not really mad at it either way. I think that there are people who... um, That was a very diplomatic way of saying poetry is superior to hip-hop. Not at all. Quite the contrary. I mean, the idea of being able to establish a hierarchy is a little bit countervalent to the whole notion yeah, yeah, of art. Yeah. Like, it's sort of like if you ask, you know, what's more fun, riding a bicycle or baking a cake? I mean, they're just in totally different sure. universes. Of course, that uh, those analogies don't quite work because I don't think hip-hop and poetry are in totally different universes. I think that they draw on similar vocabularies and I, of course, don't just mean word vocabularies but vocabularies of the body, vocabularies right. of verse and meter and rhyme and And craft. each can achieve
1: things that the other simply can't. And Absolutely. Then, and then one can make the decision like well the achievement here is simply superior to the maximum achievement here you,
3: those are yeah. not well, invalid i, think, I mean judgments. chance the rapper is you know one of the most important and influential people in hip hop right now and he was reared in the same poetry culture that i was you know you are such a chicago partisan <laughs> it's true i can't i can't help mm-hmm. myself but i also think something that hip hop has been able to achieve that poetry has not quite although i could see it going in this direction is that hip hop is a totalizing culture so hip-hop is not only a musical practice, right, but it's a sartorial practice, it's a verbal practice. A
1: branding practice. It's all, all
3: of the above, right? Um, Imagine and, if
1: poetry were that. That would be terrifying.
3: I Yeah, I don't even... It's hard for me to even conceptualize what that would look like, but I, I don't think it's impossible, actually. Um, you are
1: also a... a Twitterific a person <laughs> Thanks And in fact uh, before I saw this book I was aware of you on Twitter uh, and your nom to Twitter Wikipedia Brown
3: Thanks yeah um, not my real name.
1: So do you see it as a, a, a writing venue for throwaway things as a distraction like smoking cigarettes used to be as a place to get news what 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 is it for you mainly?
3: Um, for me, it serves a lot of purposes. One is that I I am a big believer in concision, and I'm not someone who necessarily um, tends toward concision naturally. I'm kind of an overly verbose person. So I think it's actually a really great tool to push oneself to argue things really succinctly. Um, I really appreciate that. Another thing for me, Twitter is very much still a social network. It allows me to engage with um, people that have very niche interests. I always used to explain to people that um, social networks on Facebook are proximal in real life, but heterogeneous. And social networks on Twitter are distant in real life, but homogenous. Well so, said, sociologist. Thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, I should put that in a paper or something. So, you know, on Facebook you have like the people you went to high school with and that guy you met that one time at that cocktail party that you sort of had a conversation with.
1: Or people who you just want to buy your book who are totally strangers.
3: And they have all these different um, opinions and ideas and you can have a conversation on one level with those folks, right? And on Twitter, you might be talking to people that you have never met in person and will never meet, but the conversation you can have with them um, can drill down much deeper because um, it's a much more homogenous conversation, right? So, um, you know...
1: Because it's entirely opt-in. You create you craft this silo. Your, yeah, yeah
3: you, and, and I think that people often talk about that in terms of, like, political ideologies and the implications of that, but I think about it, for me, the way it's most relevant is um, in terms of, uh, like, pop culture. And so, you know, I could go on Facebook and be like, okay okay, you know, has anyone seen the latest Star Wars trailer? Um, And I can go on Twitter and have that same conversation. And it's a whole bunch of, like, black nerds that are roughly the same age as me from all over the country or all over the world arguing about what it means to have a black stormtrooper, right? And um, that is so delicious and delightful for me that I just really enjoy it. So black
1: Twitter is a thing. Obviously there are many black Twitters because your your nerd version is different than somebody else's.
3: I think black Twitter is a thing. My my good friend Van Newkirk, um, who I met on Twitter, and now he's a staff writer for The Atlantic. Um, But anyway, Van has made the argument for a while that black Twitter is Twitter Um, and I think that that increasingly has become the case meaning meaning that um in the same ways that African-American people in this country have become drivers of popular culture in so many other arenas, in ways that are often sometimes made visible, like with, for example, hip hop and sports and other times kind of a race, like for example, rock and roll music, um, that the most influential people who are driving the most interesting conversations on Twitter that are most visible are black people. Hmm. Um, and that trends and memes and conversations and shifts and, politics are sort of driven by that group of people. Um, I'd like
1: to see the scholarship on that. I'm not sure by that.
3: Well I think that it depends on what you mean in terms of like people who are relatively few in number who have a very outsized influence on a conversation.
1: Punching above weight I would definitely accept. (laughs) E viewing I could talk to you all day. This has been a pleasure thank Thank you you very much. Thank you
3: so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Electric Arches, your book, is out now and available everywhere.
3: Everywhere.
1: Here is this guy performing at one of his campaign rallies last year.
0: And I'll tell you what, folks, you heard me the other night. I wasn't thinking even about you. I'm thinking about the miners all over this country. We're going to put the miners back to work. We're going to put the miners back to work.
1: And then this guy, also in 2016, also performing a role as a character campaigning for president in West Virginia. got I love coal. <laughs> Many of you guys have suffered terribly, worse than
2: anyone,
0: and as president, I promise I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you people work in coal for the rest of your lives. <laughs>
1: Alec Baldwin has been channeling Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live since last fall. And earlier this year, he recruited me to collaborate with him on a project writing Trump's fictional first-year presidential memoir, which is just out. It is called You Can't Spell America Without Me. Alec Baldwin, welcome <laughs> back to Studio 360.
0: You know, I'm, a, I'm dumb, but I'm no dummy. You know what I'm saying? That's why I hired you. I knew I knew what I needed. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. We're going to get on to talk about things other than us and doing Mm -hmm. Trump. But uh, as I was doing it with you, the most – one of the most delightful parts was – of of doing this thing, you can't spell America, was – When we talk about what Trump might say here, what Trump might do there, you really naturally fall into Donald Trumpism. I mean, it's like it's it's almost automatic. When you do Trump and you play it week after week
0: after week, I'll be talking to somebody. And it is bizarre how not a lot. I mean, you don't make a habit of this. You just erupt into this thing. Like You look at somebody and go, I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. (laughs) Very well done. I want you to roast the shit out of that chicken. (laughs) You know, and you just just burst into that.
1: Yeah. It's weird. Uh, By the way, here is a bit that I had not heard until today, a bit from the book of you, the audio version of the book of you as the president.
0: I wanted to say to the blacks, work will set you free. Work will set you free. Make it a new Trump chant like lock her up, lock her up, but positive like America first. And I said to my team when they got so upset, hey, I'm a very strong believer in hard work. I don't know German. I don't know free, fatty, Arbuckle, or whatever you say it is in German. I never knew German. Only my dad, Sieg, Ist mein, and a few others. But very, very few of the African Americans would know the concentration camp slogan anyway. I'm sure. Because I didn't.
1: Alec Alec Baldwin as President Trump in the audio version of our book. Free, fatty, Arbuckle. Um, it it also struck me thinking about you doing Trump that while you have done all kinds of characters uh, in film and on TV and stage, some of the greatest and most memorable are these jerks yeah. you've done. Villains. Right? Villains uh, of this very American male kind. It's almost like you were preparing for this uh, – right, your destiny the lead up, as to lead up. <laughs> the president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think of the, the magnificent uh, role you had as the character Blake in, in David Mamet's uh, movie adaptation of his play, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, 1992. Here's a clip Put
0: that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. <laughs> you think I'm fucking with you? I am not fucking with you. I'm here from downtown. I'm here from Mitch and Murray. And I'm here on a mission of mercy. How awful. How awful? How awful. Well, you know what I loved is that I spoke to Mamet, you know, around the time preparing to do the film, and Mamet said, none of these men are criminals, and they're going to commit a criminal act, and I need this DSX Machina to come in and instigate, to force them to commit a criminal act. In the play... He doesn't exist. Well, right, but he said it was funny how he said, you know, in the play, which won the Pulitzer Prize, he thought there was something missing. So he decides to go and rewrite his Pulitzer Prize-winning play for the movie. He said, I really felt there was a guy that needed to kind of lean on them. So he created the character huh. of Blake. Mamet writes about predation in the human world. I mean, this is predation. You see in, in, in uh, Glengarry and you see in Oleana and you see the way people behave.
1: That are the real tough dramas. It's It's ugly. You played a fabulous jerk boss for seven years on television, the NBC executive Jack Donaghy on 30 Rock. Here is a clip from early in the show, early in his relationship with Liz Lemon, Tina Fey's character. Are you familiar with the G.E. Triduction oven?
3: I don't cook very much.
1: Sure. I got you.
0: New York, third wave feminist, college educated, single and pretending to be happy about it, overscheduled, undersexed. You buy any magazine that says healthy body image on the cover, and every two years you take up knitting for a week.
1: That is dead on. What, are you going to guess my weight now?
0: You don't want me to do that. That was season one, yeah, as you can yeah, tell. Yeah, But I don't think he was a jerk. You don't? I never thought, no, I thought he was just very clear, and I thought he was, he was very clear.
1: He was that. He, rewatching him uh, last week, preparing for this, I, I thought, "Oh, uh, a much a younger, much smarter, much more focused version of Donald Trump." Um, okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, don't he's, think so. Oh, I don't you know, you but, like, you, but you, love, but I'm glad you think you so. I'm glad Jack, it triggered you, some. You love Jack, I
0: guess. I, I love Jack. Well, I think that Trump is malicious. I don't think Jack was malicious. Jack well, was, and whenever the malice crept into the script, we took it out of it.
1: Trump there. is in a drama. Uh, Jack was in a comedy.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, I learned something today.
1: There you go. Uh, Then and now you have incarnated a new jerky uh, boss uh, in your franchise as a baby. Boss baby. Here is a Here's a clip. Oh, no.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know what you're thinking. Look how helpless he is. Can't even change his own diaper. Well, can't or won't. Diapers are all about power dynamics. I poop, they wipe, bam! I'm the boss. Um, that movie made $500 million worldwide, I'll have you know. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's in yeah. another so level. So you got
1: 100, 200 of that? <laughs>
0: I like Yeah, about 175 of it. I mean, it's at another level from Trump and
1: Donegan yeah. and all that stuff, yeah. Um, that was huge. At, ooh, you said it in the normal, almost in the normal, like, Baldwin voice. Um, So, thinking about uh, the great jerks and villains of cinema, I asked you for a list of performances that you admire, uh, and because of your encyclopedic knowledge of the cinema, you gave about two dozen, and and we're going to talk about a few uh, in what I'm calling uh, Baldwin movie classics. Uh, It'll be a franchise for us. Uh, Louise Fletcher uh, as Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Here's to remind our listeners. Thank
0: you. Uh, Excuse me, miss... Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk?
3: That music is for everyone, Mr. McMurphy.
0: Yeah, I know, but you think we might ease it down a little bit so maybe the boys didn't have to (laughs) shout? Huh?
3: What you probably
0: don't realize is that we have a lot of old men on this ward who couldn't hear the music if we turned it lower. That music is all they have.
1: With Jack Nicholson, of course, as McMurphy. Uh... Uh, And there, I love the Louise Fletcher's ratchet because she's being nice. Yeah.
0: I I try to think of women as villains when we talked about this and that Louise Fletcher character. Oh, my God. It's maddening what she does to him.
1: Yeah. Uh, And I met her subsequently. She's a lovely person. Yeah. But it it was a little like, are you going to scare me, you know, when I met her in Hawaii? I know. It's like like Ted Levine, the actor that played Buffalo
0: Bill in uh, Silence of the Lambs.
1: It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again.
0: I'd seen Silence of the Lambs. I think I was in my hotel and I watched it a couple of nights in a row on the hotel pay-per-view. And I I was just so flooded with the images from that movie. Then I went to work shooting the movie Prelude to a Kiss in Chicago with Meg Ryan. And the local Chicago makeup artist, her husband, came to work one day to visit her. And it was Ted Levine, the actor. And I thought my skin was going to just... Burst into there you go.
1: Even, even people in the business aren't immune from that feeling. Uh, here now is Nicholson as another of your favorites a few years later as the novelist at work uh, being interrupted by his wife in this scene played by Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Wendy, <clears throat> let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt
2: me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me and it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're gonna make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the the fuck you hear
1: me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in.
2: How do you think you can handle that?
1: Uh, so great. Right? I th-
0: you know, what's funny how th- to, to do a good role. The phrase I was always told so you can avoid the judgment, the villainy, right. and jerks and things right, like right, that right. was someone said, You're the negative value in the piece. Don't think about it. You're just, you're there. You're going to play Hitler. That's the old cliche. You're going to play Hitler. You've got to give it everything you've got. Yeah. You've got to be the best Hitler you yeah. can be. You're going to play... They don't think they're villains. No, they think they, they, no. they, they're on to something. Yeah. So movies I've played, I thought, well, you want the audience to be excited when that guy expires, when the, the hero or heroine dispenses with them. And just for the satisfaction of the audience, I mean, no one was more, I'm not going to say mustache twirling, but no one was, was fuller in their villainy. No one was more soaring in their kind of villainy than Nicholson in that movie. Well, was Well, so the last...
1: 15 minutes, especially. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But even
0: up to them, even when he's warming up to it. That that movie, just to me, is a work of art. I love that movie. Uh,
1: Another one you named, and I wouldn't have thought of this because, of course, you think of Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, the actor James Anderson is Bob Yule.
2: Here he is. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Yule? Captain, I'm real sorry they picked you to defend that nigga that raped my Yellow. I don't know why I didn't kill him myself instead of going to the sheriff. I oh, it saved you and the sheriff and the taxpayers lost trouble. Excuse me, Mr. Ewell, I'm very. Hey, Captain, uh, somebody told me just now that uh, they thought that you believed Tom Robinson's story again, Iron. Again, Iron? You know what I said. Shh! I said you wrong, man. You dead wrong. Mr. Finch ain't taking this story against Iron. Well, they was wrong, wasn't they? I've been appointed to defend Tom Robinson. Now that he's been charged, that's what I intend to do. You've taken his to Excuse me, Mr. Ewell. What kind of a man are you? What kind of man are you?
1: You got children of your own. You got chillin' a yawn, he says. And you were you were reciting it, that, which is uh, a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, and I loved how had the, in the writing—I guess it was in the writing. He said, Captain. Hey, Captain. Captain.
0: Yeah. Again on. He said, you're going to take the word of it. You're going to take Tom Brown's and again on. He says, that guy— he died early he was only 48 years old i believe he was a very young guy and and but but he gives one of the greatest performances i mean to, there's so many great performances obviously in this film mary badham and duval who doesn't even have a line and he just crushes you with his acting as boo radley it's his film debut duval's film debut but uh, uh this character of uh, of uh, of bob yule is just one of the worst characters the most despicable characters and he does
1: it so Realistically, there's nothing – I mean that – you really think that guy is that guy. He doesn't back off from it at all. It's, a, it's thrilling. Yeah. We can end on a che- more cheerful note. That, uh, this is from the producers, your suggestion of the wonderful Zero Mostel as Bialystok. Here he is near the beginning of the film uh, asking Gene Wilder as his accountant Bloom to save him from his uh, malfeasance.
3: Mr. Bialystok, I've discovered a serious error here in the accounts of your
0: last play.
1: Where? What?
0: Well, according to the backers list, you raised $60,000. But the play that you produced only cost $58,000. That's $2,000 unaccounted for. I went to a Turkish bath. Who cares? The play was a flop. (laughs) What difference does it make? What difference does it make? That's fraud. If they found out, you could go to prison. Who's going to find out it's only $2,000, Bloom? Do me a favor. Move a few decimal points around. You can do it. You're an accountant. You're a noble professional. The word count is part of your title. That's cheating. It's not cheating. It's charity. Bloom, look at me. Look at me, Bloom. <laughs> Bloom, I'm drowning. Other men sail through life. Bialystok has struck a reef. Bloom, I'm going under. I am being sung by a society that demands success when all I can offer is failure. Bloom. Bloom? I'm reaching out to you. Don't send me to prison.
1: Like uh, Jack, he, he's, a lo- he's a lovable rep. Lovable.
0: lovable. Right? No one more lovable than him. But, but are we going to do honorable mention of all the other ones? We're not going to sure, do that. Sure. Go the, ahead. Well, I just you want to mention James Mason and The Verdict. You're not paid to do your best, you're paid to win one of the great that great against, scene, Paul <clears throat> against Paul Newman against Paul Newman that scene where he puts the check in um, Charlotte Rampling's pocketbook he pays for these legal fees that pay for my whiskeys uh, Jack Palance and Shane
2: Stonewall Jackson was trash himself him Lee and all the rest of them ribs you too
1: the ending? Oh, man. As the horrible guy who comes to town. and Yeah, when he
0: kills Alicia Cook. We're going to come back to For Elizabeth. being a dirty rat. And when he says, he says, yeah, he says, yo oh, you ribs. Jackson Lee, they trash. You trash, too, he says. <laughs> Blows him away. Jack Palance, great, great. Lee Ermy in Full Metal Jacket, the guy that was the drill sergeant. What is your major malfunction, numbnuts? A uh, wonderful performance. Uh, Lee J. Cobb and On the Waterfront. Lee J. Cobb. As the, on the union boss. As the union boss. We got the
3: fattest piers and the fattest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out. We take our cut.
0: He's like, you know, uh, just a lesson in acting. Because a guy that rides the perfect blend of, like, the kind of forceful and the brutish and the charming and the kind of black-sapping Paul he is. Otto Preminger in uh, *Stalag 17.
1: Well... There'll be two SS men here tomorrow to take you to Berlin. He's a full-scale Nazi commandant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, I think he
0: really did have a lot of wiggle room there. You know what I mean? Uh, to kind of don't think of him as bad. Don't uh, think, yeah, he's <laughs> the, negative space. He's, he's the greatest Nazi commandant, the most charming, uh, and of course, Alicia Cook in uh, um, in Maltese Falcon. I love Alicia Cook.
1: Keep on riding me. They're going to be picking iron out of your liver.
0: My favorite line Bogart says when he disarms him. You know, like He pulls his coat he was over the his bad head. guy
1: and kills an old lady. He's a henchman, uh, yeah. yeah.
0: And then Bogart takes the gun away from him. Bogart says, my favorite line goes, that's going to get you in real good with your boss, he says. Come on, this will put you in solid with your boss. Um, you are a connoisseur of this. Uh, I love those kinds of movies. Yeah. That's why I do a lot of my stuff on TCN. Alec, thank you. Hey, listen, I want everybody to know you did a great job on the book. You're going to get a lot of great response for that. It's uh,
1: funny. Uh, and there are th- dozens of of hilarious pictures of you as our president in various realistic-looking uh, uh, presidential spaces. There's a few good ones. Spaces. Uh, You Can't Spell America Without Me. It's called The Really Tremendous Inside Story of My Fantastic First Year as President Donald J. Trump. It's out. Uh, It's been a pleasure doing that and talking to you here today. And we got other plans up our sleeve, too, don't we? Eh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Right after Alec Baldwin left the studio, he called me uh, in a dither because he'd forgotten one of his favorite cinematic villains of all time and wanted to make sure I said it. That is Robert Newton, especially for his performance as Bill Sykes in Oliver Twist, David Lean's 1948 version.
3: He'll treat in the boys again, eh? You
1: avaricious old fence. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is...
0: Jocelyn Gonzalez.
1: Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim.
3: Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders.
1: Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Clyde Gillette. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. Donaghy or Donaghy? Donaghy. Donaghy, right. Donaghy. Oh, like the Indian clarified butter, ghee. Is it ghee?
0: PRI Public Radio
1: International. Eighty years later, a song about the Roaring Twenties seems absolutely relevant. You better accept the fact that anything's going to go because that's what America's about. You might as well enjoy the ride. Anything goes. That's our next American icon in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate.
2: Anything goes. Good
0: offers.